0: becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It was our first Valentine's Day together, and it was supposed to be perfect. A couple months out, I booked a reservation at a restaurant, and I bought two tickets to the Boston Opera House. And it was February 14th, 2006, and I was to take my seminary girlfriend at the time, Kendra, to uh, watch her favorite musical, Les Mis. On the morning of, I got up extra early to spend an extra time washing, brushing up, taking a long shower, I made sure I smelled clean. I made sure my hair was spikier than usual. And before the days of the GPS, I had to make sure that I, I researched and wrote down all the directions from MapQuest to make sure I knew how to get us from the North Shore to the city of Boston and back. Now, if you've ever driven in the city of Boston without without a GPS, you know that the streets have no rhyme or reason. You know that it's the craziest thing ever, it's just the most illogical does not make any sense. Most streets are just squigglies. You know, they don't, they're not perpendicular, they're not parallel. Most streets are one way, and they change names without warning. And so we drive from here, there, everywhere, and back, and we started to run out of time. And maybe it's because I stopped to ask for directions four times, but for whatever reason Kendrick got the strange idea that maybe we were lost, and she started to get panicky. And when she starts to get panicky, I get panicky. And we start to get frustrated with each other. And by the time we got to the restaurant and our food came out, we were just having to scarf down our steak. We were rushing so late that Kendra had to literally run to the opera house in high heels. And when we got there, we were so exhausted and so annoyed with each other that we could hardly enjoy the musical for the first 20 minutes or so until we calmed down. The night was supposed to be magical. It was supposed to be perfect. I mean, all the boxes were checked off. I got her flowers. I got her chocolate. I even wrote her a nice card. I even had spiky hair. But instead of making her feel loved and cared for, I yelled at her, made her tense, and made her cry. I lost sight of what really mattered. Too often, we can lose sight of what really matters, can't we? I mean, we neglect our families, we sacrifice our own colleagues, we get our priorities all scrambled, and we really lose sight of what really matters and what's the point. In Philippians 3, we find that the Apostle Paul says that the, what matters most, what really counts, what's most important in our relationship with God and all that, all that necessary stuff, it's easy for us to get it all scrambled, to get it all mixed up, and to completely miss the point. Paul, who wrote the third of the New Testament, said he himself missed the point and got it all wrong. And if he can get it wrong, so can we. Because what matters to us is not always what matters to Jesus. What matters to us is not always what matters to Jesus. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope that you would be able to hear the essence of Christianity. You'll be able to walk out of this room knowing what the heart of Christianity is, and even if you do not agree with it, I hope that you will find it to be very attractive. If you are a here Christian this morning, and you have embraced the person of Jesus, or rather been embraced by Him, my desire is that you will leave here knowing that our faith is actually really good news. I hope to refocus us as a church and remind us why we're here in this place. So this morning, I've got two questions to ask us. First, what matters to us? And second, what matters to Jesus? What matters to us? What matters to Jesus? So first, what matters to us? Now, most of us have been taught in one way or another that what matters most is what we contribute. It's our ability to contribute something to make sure we pull our own weight. Perhaps we grew up in a family where the most important thing, the mantra of the family, was that we all had to contribute something, that we all had to play a part, that we all had a part to play. And maybe the expectation was that we had to do our chores, or that we had to do our homework, that we had to study and we had to stay out of trouble. But the expectation was that we would have to lend ourselves to the benefit of the entire family. The expectation of life, Is that we are to bring something to the table to have to prove ourselves. Now if we need a job, what do we need? When we need work, you need a a resume. You need a piece of paper that demonstrates why you're qualified. It's got a list of the credentials, got a list of our experience, and it tries to argue for why you're hireable. When you interview, you're actually trying to convince the other person, you're trying to sell yourself, that you're, you're the right person for the hire. When you're trying to get into university, you put together a portfolio and you, and you say, check out my grades, check out my extracurricular activities, and my service to the community. When you're on a date, you, you try to impress the person sitting on the other side of the table, and you try to prove to the other person why you're worthy of their time and worthy to be with them. Now, if we don't differentiate, if we don't stand out, then we don't get the part. We don't make the grade. We don't make the team. We don't make the cut. But Paul would say that those very things we use to differentiate ourselves are those very things that can keep us from what is most important. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his day, there were a lot of false teachers, one of them were a group of people called the Judaizers. They were converts into Judaism, and they taught that the most important thing in our relationship with God is whether or not we are circumcised. Circumcision is a defining marker of whether you are in or out. And the Apostle Paul renounced that false teaching and said circumcision cannot be a requisite to God's love. It cannot be a requisite. Why? Because we have nothing in us to commend us or to qualify us before God. If there was anyone who knew that there is nothing we can do to impress God by what we do, it was the Apostle Paul himself. And to make his case, he provides us with a resume. It is a flawless resume, it is pristine. No Jewish mind could have come up with a more impressive list of credentials. And what were Paul's credentials? Paul tells us. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning I received the sign of being a child of the promise. I come from the nation of Israel. I am an Israelite by birth. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I come from a respectable lineage. I've got the pedigree. I've got the family tree. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not a Hellenist. I'm a Hebrew par excellence. I speak the language. I was raised in the culture. I'm as Hebrew as you can get. As to the law of Pharisee, I come from a people who has the highest reverence for the Word of God. I went above and beyond what was expected of me. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was wrong, but man, I showed zeal. I actively opposed heresies, and my passion for the things of God went unrivaled. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Blameless. I kept all the commandments from my youth up, and I was found above reproach. So today I brought in my own resume, literally. And keep in mind, resumes are by nature boastful. Uh, But my resume is pretty impressive. It's got nine pages, right? It's got nine pages, and it's even got some quotes in here from very important people expressing how important I am. And these quotes speak about how I'm a top performer, how qualified and gifted I am, and how I'm qualified to do the job and do what I do. Now today, this week, actually this week, I, you know, Worked on a different kind of resume, and I'm going to share that with you today. I worked on a different kind of resume, where it's not an attempt to qualify myself for employment. It's a resume I use to qualify myself for life, and this is what I've got so far. I, Steve Yang, am the son of an elder at a church of at least 10,000 people. I was the leader of my Christian club in high school. I have a philosophy degree. From UCLA. I have a Masters of Divinity with honors. In just two years of college, I memorized seven books of the Bible. In college, my female friends voted me the number one most dateable guy. I once served Jimmy Carter his coffee. I used to do a thousand consecutive sit-ups every other day, and I had an eight-pack when I was in high school. Now I just have one big pack. Manny knows this, but my kids think I'm funny. We spend so much energy trying to convince God, each other, and even ourselves that we're more impressive than we really are. And we're deeply insecure and terribly afraid of being found out. When I was a kid, I repeated the third grade. And it came with so much shame that... My parents moved me to a different school just down the street. That way nobody would have to know it was my second go around and I'd be able to say a face. During the school year, my father came into my room and he found me wasting time when I should have been studying. My father says, dude, what are you doing? I just came out of your brother's room and your brother was studying like you're supposed to. And here you are wasting time. This is why you're failing school. From now on, I want you to be exactly like your brother. Do exactly as he does when he doesn't. When he studies, you study. When he plays, you play. When he eats, you eat. When he sleeps, you sleep. The message was clear that the only way I was going to be acceptable is if I was an academic. The message was clear. The only way I was going to be accepted and please my father was if I was going to be exactly like Peter, exactly like my older brother. And that's what I did. I spent my life trying to be just like Peter, but only better. And the weight of having to outdo a high achiever is an enormous weight for anyone to carry. But I was determined to never get caught, wasting time again. I was determined to never be embarrassed by being outperformed. And such fear drove this third-grade repeat to be, the top of it, to be at the top of his class. This same fear drove a wounded third-grader, or third, a wounded middle schooler, that same person to pull many all-nighters throughout middle school. Middle school! What was I doing? What was I doing? I was building a resume. I was putting together a resume. But the problem with a resume is that no matter what's on the piece of paper, no matter how impressive you want to portray yourself, no matter what kind of name we make for ourselves, we will always remain restless. I will never forget what Madonna said in an interview. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again, And again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, I I admire Madonna's honesty. And perhaps in that one statement alone, Madonna was more honest than most of us would ever dare to be. Because she saw, no matter how she performed, no matter how many albums she sold, no matter how loved she was and adored she was by the fans, no matter how popular she got, that the feeling of having done enough would always elude her. My struggle has never ended And it probably never will. Now we think what matters most is what we make of ourselves. But Christianity says that our value cannot come from within. It must come from the outside. Christianity says that our acceptability has nothing to do with our own credentials. It's got nothing to do with our own capabilities or our own suitability. This is why Christianity is so hard to digest and so hard for us to swallow because it seems to insult our human dignity. C.S. Lewis said this, The sort of love we need is not the sort we want. We want to be loved for our cleverness, beauty, generosity, fairness, usefulness. He goes on to say, it is very difficult to receive from others a love that does not depend on our own attraction. It is very difficult to receive from others a love that does not depend on our own attraction. End quote. Now, we insist on bringing something, and so we miss out on everything. We insist on bringing something, and so we miss out on everything. Now, if that's what matters to us, to bring something of worth ourselves, to make something of ourselves, and we miss it, then what matters to Jesus? If we're missing it, then what matters to Him? What matters to Jesus? Now, if we call ourselves Christian, then at one point in time we have embraced the notion that we are utterly, by ourselves, by nature, utterly bankrupt. We're bankrupt. Maybe it was easier to accept and believe that at one point in time but we believe that we are lost, we are hopeless, we are destitute. But we don't like remaining empty-handed. We don't like remaining bankrupt. And so despite having started with utter bankruptcy, we like to think that we've got change in our pockets. And we like to think that our acceptability before God depends on what we bring. We certainly act that way. We think that our acceptability before God depends on what we bring to the table. But Jesus does not want to relate with us in this way. Jesus does not want to relate with us on the basis of our resumes. Jesus does not want to relate with us on the basis of what we do for Him, but rather on the basis of what He has done for us. And perhaps the way we're relating to Jesus is just completely sucking our enjoyment out of the whole Christian life. That Christianity somehow, maybe, is a bore. Or that it has completely removed the joy of why we follow Jesus. It leaves us without joy, leaves us without lasting change. We find very little satisfaction. Now, we get busy for God. It's very possible for us to do all sorts of spiritual stuff, do all sorts of stuff for the church, do all stuff in our private life, in our devotional life. But if the way we're relating with Jesus, Leave our hearts stale. We're doing something wrong. Scott Saul says this, It is possible to be drawn to the Bible, theological study and discourse, and even to teaching, preaching, serving, and church, yet be disconnected relationally from Jesus. If we are seeking his kingdom, but not seeking him, then we are missing the point entirely. End quote. As we collaborate and pray and are on mission for this community and this city, we must not lose sight of what exactly we're inviting others into a life in Christ. A life in Christ. And we started the Christian journey with utter dependence upon Jesus. And so we too must continue our journey with utter dependence. Upon Jesus. And as we move forward to the, the new year, as we make these plans, as we strategize, as we invite people in, we must not lose sight of what is most important. Because what matters most to Jesus is that we are connected with him and his heart. Now this week I really enjoyed putting together that resume, uh, in part because I kind of really wanted you guys to know I used to have an ape back. And you know, I think deep inside, kind of secret, want to still hold on to it. But what about you? What would go on your resume? Now, let's work on that together. I've got a piece of paper. And I want this paper to represent your, rep- represent your resume, to represent your accomplishments. Now, put on this piece of paper whatever you use to make you feel better about who you are whatever you use to tell you who you are. Put on this piece of paper whatever you use to commend yourself before God and other people. Put on this piece of paper whatever you're itching to tell your family and friends that might make you seem more interesting or look more impressive in some way. Now, Paul would say, all this stuff on this piece of paper, he once considered to be advantageous. It gave him value, but now he considers these things to be loss. He once considered these things to be advantageous and positive, but now he considers these things as actually negative, as a detriment. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say that these things are actually a loss? They're in the red. That they're a detriment. Well, if... Our morality and our accomplishments cannot bring us any closer to God in any way. Holding on to these very things can only keep us from seeing our desperate and most dire need. Holding on to these things can only keep us from connecting with Jesus. Flannery O'Connor, in one of her novels, wrote this about one of her characters. Quote, Mr. Head had never known before what mercy felt like because he had been too good to deserve any. Mr. Head had never known before what mercy felt like because he had been too good to deserve any. So what does the Apostle Paul want us to do with this piece of paper? He wants us to throw it away. Get rid of it. He says that these things, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, is rubbish. Is rubbish. The word rubbish is skubala. It's a word that you don't find anywhere in the New Testament, and it's a bit difficult to translate. Translations don't really always agree, because there are, always, there are so many different ways it's used. It describes most often food that's gone bad, you know, that which is thrown to the dogs. It describes trash. It describes garbage dung, excrement. Crap. It's just it's just crap. That's the best translation. The Steve Yang version is it's just crap. And he wants us to throw it away. To get rid of it. It's no use. It's no, it's no good. It works against you. Now, we're going to do a little ritual this morning. I brought a shredder. And Paul says to get rid of it. Just throw it away. That was not good. Remember what this represents. (laughs) Now, if we really understood what we just did if we knew what we just got rid of that should have been very painful that should have been a very painful experience because we worked hard for that we worked hard for it so how do we give it up we don't want to so how do we Philippians 3 verse 7 But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, or my performance, but that which comes through faith in Christ, better translated, Through the faithfulness of Christ, which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. I can relate with God, I can relate to Him, not on the basis of my strength, but rather on the object of my strength. And my simple faith in the faithfulness of Jesus is enough to make me right. With God. Paul says that we are found in him. To be found in him, to be found in Christ means that we have been united with him, that we have been made one with him. And Paul actually has to make up new words. He comes up with a whole new vocabulary to describe this new reality that we have. And so he takes these Greek prepositions, with, soon, and he compounds them with other words, other verbs, that normally wouldn't go together. And so you'll hear him say stuff like, we have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2. We have been buried with Christ, Romans 6. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. We have been found in him means that whatever is true of Jesus is now also true of me. Now, growing up, I collected baseball cards. Anyone have baseball cards at home? Everyone ever collected? Now, one of the things I loved with baseball cards, but even more cooler than baseball cards, was as a kid, I was fascinated by all these baseball card errors. You know, that there always seemed to be wrong with these baseball cards. Uh, they always had someone else's statistics on them or something. And one baseball card error, uh, one card company actually reversed the photo image of famous Hank Aaron so that he appeared to be left-handed batter as opposed to a right-handed batter. Perhaps the most striking error in the history of baseball cards is that of Anaheim Angels' Aurelio Rodriguez. Aurelio Rodriguez. On the back of his card, he had his statistics. He had his batting average. But on the front of his card, he had a picture of the team's 14-year-old bat boy. So it was Rodriguez's statistics on the back, but on the front, it was the picture of a little kid. And could you imagine working hard all season long, and all your work, all your efforts, all your RBIs, and all your home runs is attributed to a 14-year-old bat boy? That stinks. But imagine if you're the bat boy. You're thinking, dude... (laughs) That's the coolest thing ever! Because instead of having statistics of how many bats you picked up or how many towels you handed out, you've got RBIs! You've got home runs! That's a picture of what Paul's talking about. Because the entirety of Jesus' life, every scene, every instance of his life, was lived vicariously in our place. From his birth, to his baptism, to his steadfastness in resisting temptation in the wilderness, from his willingness to endure hunger, thirst, fatigue, betrayal, to his obedience on the cross, all of it, every moment, was lived so that we would get all the credit, so that we would have his flawless batting average so that we would receive his perfect resume when christ lived i lived when christ died i died you know what that means for me that means i don't have to find my identity in trying to be like my older brother or try to outdo him what that means is i don't have to be an academic to be accepted what this means is that I don't have to bring the greatest paycheck or be the, to provide the largest home or receive the recognition from the company I want or to be the greatest preacher. Well, I don't have to make the grade, make the cut, or make the team. But this means that I can relax, receive His love, and respond in worship. Because what Christ wants most, what matters most to Jesus is that we're connected with him and his heart. David Ireland was a famous or sorry, was David Ireland was a family counselor. And one day he was diagnosed with neuromuscular disease. Eventually he was unable to walk and was forced into a wheelchair. And David's wife got pregnant and the doctors told David that most likely he would not survive to see the birth of his own child. And so David wrote letters to a child he never met and he did not know. Eventually, after he passed, these letters were collected and published by his wife in a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. In one of the letters, he writes about his wife. And this is what he writes Your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable." fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car, and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the, car, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, sits me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's all over, finished. With real warmth, she'll say, Honey... Thank you for taking me out to dinner. I never quite know what to answer. We naturally resist our helpless estate. But the embrace, just how little we contribute, frees us. It frees us to receive His love and to experience the warmth of His embrace. He never tires to love us. He never tires to give us all the credit. Because what matters to Jesus is that we are connected with Him and His heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, none of this matters if it does not connect us to You. And only You can... Make our dead hearts come to life. Only you, Holy Spirit, can whisper the voice of our Heavenly Father that's able to dissolve our fears. Only you, Lord Jesus, can touch us in a way that can make an impact for us. When we hear all these lies, all these things that we're supposed to do, all these expectations we put on ourselves or that are put on us, Lord, you know our striving, you know our fears. You know our insecurities. We ask that, Lord, You would speak to us. And make Jesus so beautiful. For those of us here who do not know You, I ask that Jesus would be so irresistibly beautiful that they cannot help but to follow Your feet. And I pray that You will give us a newfound stimulus, a reason to be missional. Give us a missional enthusiasm that springs and can only spring out of what You have done for us. Make the gospel sweet for us. Only Holy Spirit, you can do so. As we are without music, or without the PowerPoint, or the slideshow, or the whatever thing up front is, Lord, I ask that you would make even this, these last songs of the remaining parts of our service sweet. I ask that as we come to do, eat of your food, the bread and the wine that represents your body, your flesh, your blood for us, I pray that it would melt our hearts and bring us to a place of worship. We honor you. May you reign in our hearts. In Christ we pray, amen.